0: Hi, and welcome to The Second Chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. Today's conversation is with award-winning stand-up comedian, podcaster, writer, and director Rachel Krieger. Rachel went from a career she loved in social work and education to become the only practicing orthodox Jewish woman on the mainstream UK comedy circuit.
1: Nobody is more surprised than me that I'm the bumblebee basically because on paper I should not be able to have a successful mainstream career.
0: Last week Rachel told us about the difficulties she had growing up including truancy, an undiagnosed neurological disorder and eventually an illness that left her unable to move. She eventually found a career she loved in social work. So what caused her to give it all up for a risky chance at a career on the stage? This week, we jump right in.
1: That was very adrenaline-fueled, but very meaningful work. And I really, really loved it, actually. And so I worked in that unit for, I think, about nine or 10 years. And I assumed I was going to do that forever, really.
0: So many people I've talked to about their change of career or their life changes. It's come from somewhere where they're like, you know, I started working in this job because someone told me to, or I started this career path because I didn't know what else to do. But always there was this thing, I say always, almost always, I w- wasn't what I wanted to do, or I always had this dream of hmm. blank. Whereas it sounds like you found something that was really, really meaningful to you and that you did love doing. So what changed that suddenly or maybe not so suddenly,
1: you needed something else. What changed? So my side thing was always arts. I always wrote from when I was really young. I've got books of terrible poetry and some good poetry and stories, and my grandfathers were both amazing storytellers, and that was all in my blood. But because it was never perceived as something that I could do as a career, it it wasn't something that I thought of as a practical future. So it was my thing I enjoyed on the side. And after I was ill, actually, I took up dancing, which I'd done when I was young and then not for years in between but because I was supposed to do as many movement things as possible to help with my rehab. And I was quite inspired by the fact that I went to do a street dance class. And if you think about the fact that I had not brilliant mobility and was quite wobbly and also was a a mum in her 30s, that does seem quite a surprising choice. But me and my sister (laughs) went together because we thought it would be a laugh. And what was interesting was I sat down with the teacher beforehand. I said, listen, I have some physical impairments and I am improving but I might not be able to do things quickly and I'm just here for the fun so please whatever she had a theatre company that took some amateur performers and then it produced semi-professional work and they were holding auditions and my sister said to me why don't you audition for them? You used to do this stuff all the time. You're always in shows, you're always in bands. Why don't you audition for them? And so I was like, don't be ridiculous. And then, and I didn't do it. And then I was annoyed. And then the next year they held auditions again and she bullied me again. And so I went for it and I was cast in this show. It was musical theatre, but I was given character roles, which is what always happened to me when I was growing up. If you needed like a funny old lady or a funny old <laughs> funny old man or you know, someone who's gonna fall over. Those those are always the parts I got, the parts which made people laugh. I think because I'm an adequate actor, but I'm not a great emoter on stage, because I find everything a bit distracting. So that was my little niche. And I really enjoyed it. And then I started doing other stuff for them and helping them with rewriting some of the lyrics and things like that because I'd always written songs, I'd always written everything and From there, other people who were in the cast and who did other things would say, would you come and do a workshop maybe about songwriting? And then it sort of escalated. And I ended up performing for a few years with that company and then with other companies completely on the side while I was doing this very major, serious job. And these were, by the way, all orthodox Jewish shows. They were women only, the cast and the audience women only. So that was quite interesting. Although I do personally perform in front of a mixed audience, but some very orthodox Jewish women don't. And Mm -hmm. so seven of us got asked to sing as a vocal harmony group in a different show. And we had such a good time. We decided to stay together and write and perform as a band. And that's what we did. And I wrote... Some of our songs, some of them with Ruth, who was the musical director out of the Seven of Us, and we had this sort of brief interlude of being very famous pop stars in the Orthodox Jewish women-only music scene here in the UK, where we toured and did did shows for people. We were performing for a long time, and that was really brilliant. But same time, I was doing the grown ups job, uh, more or less grown ups job, and then. <laughs> I sort of got to a point where it had become like I had two full-time jobs. And certainly in terms of my headspace, I didn't really know what to do. And then I came to this crossroads where three things happened at once, really. So the first thing was there was a case, and obviously I'm going to be a bit circumspect about what I say about it, but there'd been a lot of changes in the authority that I was working in, a lot of funding cuts, and I felt very anxious about some of the things that we were being made to say and made to do or, or made to offer, which weren't always what I felt was going to be helpful to the family and sometimes was going to be quite detrimental to the family and to the good work that had been done up to that point. And there was a case that happened where it did implode the family and there were terrible outcomes. And I suddenly thought, I don't know if I can be in this system anymore, where over the last six months to a year, a lot of these decisions made way above me for mainly for financial reasons are causing further damage. And that's my perspective. And please don't sue me if you're listening and you know where I work. For the first time, I really felt I was taking things home with me. And I had an on-call phone some of the time, but I was was accessing my on-call phone and telling people to call me and whatever at times outside of my work, because I was so anxious about what would happen if they didn't have the right resources and they didn't have someone to mediate on their behalf. Also, at the same time, I started having so many people interested in me working for them from an arts point of view, to help produce shows, to direct something, to write for something, and for money. And I thought, well, this is quite interesting. And I had to keep turning stuff down because I couldn't do that during the working day. And then I suddenly discovered, just by accident, really, that I was on the wrong pay scale, because I went from local authority job to local authority job, even when I was a youth worker. And there's a continuity of pay through local authority employment. So they'd missed one of the jobs. And it meant that I was supposed to be on a whole point above what I was being paid on. And because it had been years and years since I'd done that job, I was owed the equivalent of about five months salary in back pay. And I'd never had like a nest egg of money to try something out with. So I came home and I had a chat with my husband and he was like, well, why don't you just do something you want from it? Like take a break. And I was really thinking about it and mulling it over what to do with this money, because if I was careful, it could last a bit longer. And then we got Ofsted inspected in our unit. And the focus of their inspection was pastoral support. I was interrogated by them and I had to produce all kinds of evidence. And we got outstanding for our provision to the students and the families attached to the unit. The only criticism they had was that the person managing that section didn't have any appropriate qualifications at all to do the job, which was true. I should have had a PhD or something, and <laughs> I just wormed my way up through the years.
0: Obviously, you were good at your job, and it's a shame that experience, that people can't look at it and go, oh, well, clearly she knows what she's doing.
1: Like, it made sense. If you'd looked at my 17-page CV by that point, It made sense that I could do that job, but the local authority spoke to my manager and my manager spoke to me and said, look, what we want to do is we want to offer you the opportunity to get qualified because we don't want to lose you. So we've spoken to various universities and because of your, your experience and because you've done certificates in this and that, you could go straight into a master's and we would pay for your master's and give you day release for everything you have to do but then we'd want a golden handcuffs arrangement where you work for us for three years after that in return. I suddenly felt like I couldn't breathe. And given everything that had been going on, I thought, I don't want to commit to three more years in a place that I'm uncomfortable at the moment. The next day I came in and handed in my notice and said, no, thank you very much, but I'm going to go. And good luck. That was in 2008. And I left in December. I just thought, you know what, What's the worst that can happen? If it doesn't work out, I'll get another job, uh, another social work type or education type job. And my friend and I decided to set up a production company together, focusing mainly on theatre, but we wanted to set up a production company which was about people developing skills in a way that made them feel good about themselves. And that was with my friend Ruth, who was also the musical director of our girl band. We decided it would be nice to create something where we give people an experience in something and it's not about... What they produce at the end. It's about how they develop in that journey. So we started doing workshops with schools, with youth groups. And also, we thought it would be a good opportunity for us who both wanted an arts type career to find out what we wanted to do by being able to try lots of different stuff ourselves. It was a good opportunity to experiment. And so I found that having the freedom to write characters and to write music and to do improv, which, you know, all these things I'd done years before was where my skill set lay. And hers was within the creative organising and photography. And we worked together for a year on this project that we set up. And then she left to become a professional photographer. And she's a fine arts photographer and so incredibly talented. And also does all my headshots, by the way. So when I get compliments on them, it's it's because she's like a photography genius. I decided I want to work properly in theatre. So I kept the workshops and stuff going on the side to help make a living in the meantime. And then I took whatever theatre work I could get in terms of directing and writing. And I worked a lot with an organisation called DISPLA, which is amazing, D-Y-S-P-L-A, which supports the work of neurodiverse creatives. And I met up with Lenny Varvarides, who runs that, and she was just such a fantastic help and support. They gave me the chance to try directing and to develop my writing, and they mentored me, and they got me to then mentor other people. And I would take whatever, whatever shadowing I could get. I had no ego about this. I wanted to learn. And I ended up very lucky that one of my shows through them started to gain some traction and it ended up being part of the Camden Fringe Festival and the Greater Manchester Fringe Festival. And it was on in the Tristan Bates Theatre in the West End and it did really well. And then I started to get other directing work from that, mainly on dark comedies. And at the same time, because I'm always a person, I always said if I write my autobiography, it will have to say meanwhile.
0: But I relate because I feel like we all wear a lot of hats, especially in creative fields. What part am I doing to make the money? What part am I doing to get creative fulfilment?
1: So meanwhile, a friend of mine who's a stand-up comic said to me, I've got loads of friends who are all trying to find opportunities to do gigs before Edinburgh, but you do lots of stuff with charities. Maybe one of your charities would like us to do a comedy night for them. So I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. Why not while I'm doing 17 other things? Why not do another thing? Why not? So he and I set up, I think, four or five of these charity comedy nights with for Edinburgh previews. And then one of the venues said to me, oh, we really enjoyed what you did. Would you run a comedy club for us in our venue? So I ran a comedy club there with a friend of mine, Hannah, for a few months. And then it kind of didn't work out because there there were four owners of the venue and they kept arguing about which night it should be on and changing the dates and various things. It was a good learning curve. And then one of the other venues from the charity night said, actually, we would love you to come back to us. And so we said goodbye to the first one. And then we set up a comedy club called Upstairs at the Adam and Eve, which Till Corona was still running and hopefully post-corona is going to run again. I think that was in about 2012 that it went as a regular thing, monthly comedy club in Mill Hill in North London for professional comedians to try new material in a kind of friendly space. And I was running that. And sometimes someone wouldn't turn up and someone would need to host it or sometimes, you know, you need to fill time. And then I would go on and sort of wrap it on a little bit because I loved comedy so much and I was so immersed in that by that time. And also even as a teenager, I used to sneak to the comedy store to watch the comedy store players. Then I started doing bits of comedy in the Jewish community, but my focus was on theatrical comedy and writing and directing. And then I went through a patch where I was writing and directing for and with other stand-ups and I directed quite a few Edinburgh shows, which were award-nominated, a couple won awards and it was really exciting. One of them was Ria Lina's show Dear Daughter, which was brilliant, and it won the Best Comedy at the Greater Manchester Fringe. But with that show, I contributed some of it. And also it's a testament to my relationship with Ria, who's still a close friend. But it was the first time I thought, I'm writing for other people what I could write for myself. And maybe I want to do it, not just because somebody hasn't turned up. Maybe I want to show up and do it. I spoke to a few of my friends in stand-up who were professional comedians. And I said to them, I'm having this little thought about maybe giving it a proper go, and every single one of them said, well, we've all been waiting for you to do that. I mean,
0: you've been you're filling in, like you said, rabbiting on, but I'm sure making people laugh. So you're going, wait, I could actually, this could be a thing.
1: This could be a thing. I honestly kept waiting for the person to say to me, well, yeah, maybe do some open mics and just leave it at that. But they were all like, no, that's a thing. And then I came home to my family and said to them, to my husband and kids and said to them, listen, I'm thinking about maybe giving stand up a go. And they went, well, oh, thank God for that. Honestly, everyone thought it. I think they all realised that if they tried to push me too much about it, then I'd run away from it. So I was mulling it over and then had a situation with Mark Dolan, the stand-up Mark Dolan, where he had a show on in the same venue as Ria's. And I came downstairs one day and he was there in the foyer talking to somebody and he introduced me to them as, this is Rachel, she's another comic. And I went like, well, no, not really. And then after this other guy left, Mark turned to me and said, you know, I think that's about the third time I've heard you say that. But yeah, I've been in the room when you've done stand up. And what is it about that label that you don't like? And I thought, that's what I've needed all the the time that I've made good decisions for myself is really when someone has said to me, what are you playing at and actually challenged me on why I'm making these other choices, choices that are not in my interest. And it really made me think about what is it about the label. And it was just the idea that, How could an Orthodox Jewish woman with no qualifications and who's done this weird job in social work and then theatre and whatever, how could that person be a stand-up? And what would I do about the fact that I can't gig on a Friday night because I'm Orthodox ever and I can only do winter Saturdays when Sabbath ends early enough to get anywhere to do anything and who's going to want to book that person? And maybe people will look at me with my headscarf on and think, well, she's so niche. What can she possibly talk about that anyone else is going to relate to? And there were so many things like that made it make no sense. But I was getting all this encouragement. So I thought, well, these are people I respect telling me that I should try it out. So maybe I owe it to myself and to them to give it a go. What Literally, what is the worst that can happen? I make a fool of myself in front of a few strangers and I never do it again. And so I took advice and I thought, As I had experience performing, I could have gone to people and said, so you've seen me on stage, book me for your club. But there is an aspect in the comedy industry about earning your stripes through doing the open mic circuit and building up your material, building up your relationship with audiences and your connections and networking. And I thought, you know what, I want to do that. I want to go back to the beginning because I knew how to be entertaining and I could entertain people for 20 minutes with no problem. I didn't know how to write a tight five minutes of material because I'd never had to do that.
0: That's kind of the beginning thing when you're like, oh, I want to try stand-up, but I have to come in and do five minutes. Will somebody let me come do that?
1: Trying to write five minutes was the hardest thing I've ever I think it was harder than childbirth in my experience.
0: You say you're an observational comic, so the idea of observing enough things that are actually amusing to get people, because I I know some of the the stand-up that I've seen are a couple that I've done, when it is the five minutes, it's like rapid fire, bam, bam, bam. The people that are really successful are the people that are just making people laugh every single
1: second, instead of like, I'm going to tell you a story. And I'm very much a storyteller. I mean, and that's, you know, as I say, that was my grandparents, that was my grandfathers, that's all I knew to do. And it's very Jewish to be a storyteller as well. I really admire those people who do five minutes of puns. I was watching Mark Simmons on something last night he's a you know a pun champion and he's completely brilliant and it just ha- how his brain works is completely different to how mine works yes but I have learned how to win a room in five minutes but it was hard to learn been really bad before I got good in every job when you first start out it's the mistakes you make and the things that go wrong that you learn from so i did that and worked really hard but at the same time because I had experience as a playwright, the idea of writing an hour of stand up for myself was, while it was weird to write it for myself, it wasn't something that I was anxious about because I was churning out an hour of stuff for other people on a fairly regular basis. I wrote my first solo show and I thought, I'm just going to do it because every other year I've taken a show, I've taken shows to the Camden Fringe, Edinburgh Fringe, Manchester Fringe. So this is the same thing. It's just that the cast is a bit smaller and it's going to cost me personally a lot more money. A lot of money, yes. I was very lucky in that I have a lot of support. And also I'm lucky that because I'm from an ethnic community that doesn't have anybody else like me in it, that community has been very supportive as well and turned up for me. So if I go somewhere in the country where there are Jews they'll show up because they'll think, well, this, let's support whatever she is. <laughs> and I don't take that privilege lightly at all.
0: You are the only practicing Orthodox Jewish woman on the mainstream UK circuit.
1: Yeah, so far. So far, yeah. That's my anxiety is that during the pandemic, some other modern Orthodox Jewish married woman is going to find that she's hilarious and I'll lose my whole USP and that will be the end of it. and No more work for me. There probably is
0: room for at least two. <laughs>
1: And there probably are loads of them. And actually, if I'm honest, of course, I would encourage them because it's important to have diverse voices and it doesn't only have to be mine.
0: You said the challenge about not being able to perform on a Friday evening Mm -hmm. and all the different challenges as far as that, but even just stereotypes as far as religion, not just Jewish religion or Orthodox Jews, but when you think of somebody who's religious, I think there's a stereotype that's they're not funny. They're very serious. And I also think there's already the issue with female comedians, it's still very challenging as far as I understand. It's still mostly men in the room. I think a lot of women, not always in a bad way, but not always in a good way, try to be more crude so they can fit into that yeah. sort of boys club and be funny. Have you found certain assumptions or prejudices about what kind of comedy you're going to bring or?
1: I mean, I quite like that because that means that I can play with that prejudice. That, that's quite entertaining for me really so first of all yes definitely I've had promoters say to me you know you're never going to have a career in comedy if you won't work Friday nights and they're not saying it to be cruel they're saying it because that's their perception but the fact is I have got a career in comedy until the coronavirus pandemic I was earning my whole living I was paying my share of my household bills it just took me maybe A while to get there but when I first started I didn't really do a lot of Jewish comedy or or rather comedy on Jewish themes because that's my everyday, and it wasn't that interesting for me. I I used to do a lot of stuff about bees as in the black and yellow stripy things bees. Bees are interesting and funny and not least because they're not meant to fly and that just as a concept an animal that one job is a thing that they're not spatially or aeronautically designed to do is an interesting (laughs) premise and then someone points out to me that it doesn't matter what I'm talking about the way I deliver material and the way I access material is so Jewish I might as well be taught just about rabbis it it doesn't really matter (laughs) and and I should embrace what I have that makes me stand out and different but then I wondered who wants to hear this stuff I thought all right I'll I'll try it and then when I started writing my show it's no job for a nice Jewish girl I thought that will be the test won't it if people want to see something or hear something that's got the word Jewish in it And that isn't going to be knocking my culture particularly, but is looking at where we all relate. We have way more in common than our differences. And actually, it's only the lens that you're looking through that's different. And what I found is actually is that people come up to me after they see me perform my material, which nowadays is very heavily Jewish in terms of the subject matter, but is completely relatable in terms of the context that we share And they'll say to me, oh, you know, my grandparents were exactly like that. So it's not unfamiliar material. So it means that everybody can relate to it. I sometimes have to try out for clubs maybe more times than some other people do because they want to see whether audiences are going to get me. But thankfully, on the whole, they do. I, I guess the same amount of audiences don't get me as don't get everybody. Because... Not any, there's no comedian who's everybody's cup of tea and I don't expect to be everybody's cup of tea and I don't expect everyone to find me hilarious my kids are very quick at pointing out when they think I'm not funny <laughs> one of those things. Also, funny women have been fantastic. Lynn and funny women really get, have given me loads of opportunities. She was one of the first people to book me for a gig when I changed over from being more of a promoter who occasionally did stuff in comedy to trying stand up. She said to me, well, come to our time of the month, which is their monthly, try out your five minutes-y club that they run. And she said, come to the time of the month and see how it feels for you to be a stand up. And once I kind of got in the flow of it, they really nurtured and developed me. I'm now on their advisory board, actually. I'm somebody who's gone through their process in the way that you're meant to, in that they help you to develop your skills. And then if you, when you get there, they want you to work for them. I've been very lucky in that I've had an immense amount of industry support from my peers and my friends and from my family. And it gave me the confidence to fail and to do badly because I had a safety net of people saying, OK, that's fine, and then next time it will be better.
0: No one's going to be everyone's cup of tea, but it does seem like an industry where there are opportunities to try new things, fail, saying, okay, this is what worked. This And, and I, I mean, I've noticed different audiences as well. Funny Women is great because you can do something like time of the month, perform for a lot of women who might understand you in a slightly different way than a mixed room. It is good that it's an, an opportunity to fail because That's the only way you can grow and get better. Absolutely,
1: People are often quite generous with their feedback because it helps the industry the better we all are. And particularly the women, the network of women is amazing in comedy because we are still quite marginalized. It's way better than it was when I first started in the industry eight or nine years ago. But women are still more marginalized. There's still fewer women, even though there are more than there were. And we still have a lot of issues around harassment and uh, inappropriate behaviour from promoters and from venues and bookers and from other comedians. And I'm hopefully part of the big group of women who are trying to address that in some very practical ways. But women are very supportive of other women on the whole in the industry. We want our sisters to shine. We want people to see women are funny. So helping each other up is the best way for that to happen.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. And that's why I'm focusing this podcast so much on women who've made changes, because I do think that just hearing other people's stories, I hate to use the word inspirational, but it is inspirational when somebody's taken a leap that is a brave or a bold move to go from a career that was offering you more education when that had been something that was a struggle for you. And to say, you know what? I'm going to try something else. That's really brave. And then to be able to go on and make your full-time career as a stand-up comedian, that's extra, super brave, exciting, lucky in some senses.
1: Yeah. All those things really. And it's a bit crazy. That's the
0: best kind of crazy.
1: (laughs) I didn't expect it to become a full-time career. Honestly, I thought I would do it for six months, get it out of my system and go back to writing and go back to directing and maybe the occasional musical comedy something or whatever. Nobody is more surprised than me that I'm the bumblebee basically because on paper I should not be able to have a successful mainstream career. And successful for me means that it's making a living and getting the results that it should get as in I can make the room laugh and I'm better at it as time goes on, I'm not saying I've n- I'm not at the end of that journey of learning, you're always learning, always learning. But if you put me on a piece of paper, orthodox Jew, social worker, neurological disorder and school problems and all these different things, they don't make sense. I'm not aerodynamically engineered to fly, but apparently I'm doing it.
0: That makes me want to just clap and you know, give you a <laughs> standing ovation. I loved what you said about relatable experiences. I think if everybody had a worldview that we could all understand each other, just our experiences might be going through a different lens. Mm. I really love what you said about that. I always ask everyone to bring a quote.
1: I'm not always very good at this, but it's my favorite quote. And actually it's my best friend, Emma, who lives in America. She, this is her quote, and she says it to me when she thinks I need to hear it. And it's, not my circus, not my monkeys. And what it means is basically. I'm
0: glad you say it because I feel like I've really only heard that expression since I've moved here, and every time I'm like, "Huh."
1: <laughs> I mean, I think really it should be: if it's not my circus, those are not my monkeys. But what it is is that you deal with your stuff. You don't have to worry about everybody else's everything, and you don't have to take on anybody else's stress. You don't have to take on anybody else's issues. Just you do you and do you properly. So. Deal with your circus and your monkeys and not somebody else's. I think women often, we can go on about the patriarchy and society and whatever, but I think we're often very conditioned to try and step in and step in and step in and get involved and get involved and get involved and put our own needs and our own circumstances, our own situation to one side to deal with other things, even if those things aren't impactful on our lives and on our needs and on our essential tasks that we might have to do. Also, I find I'll often take on other people's emotional circumstances and emotional distress and want to fix that. I have to fight my own battles. That battle might be in support of my family. It doesn't have to be for me from a selfish perspective, but not letting every other thing bother me, not worrying about every other person's everything is, I think, quite important. So not my circus, not my monkeys.
0: So you, of course, have talked about your podcast, but I don't even think we've given the name of your podcast. And I think it's really interesting, especially since you said you didn't incorporate Jewish things before. And now I love looking at everything that you have, how it does incorporate Jewishness, as you say. So your podcast is Jew Talking to Me.
1: Yeah, with a question mark, Jew Talking to Me. I lived in New York for a long time. So I want to say Jew Talking to Me. That's how you should say it. Perfect. We had quite a big argument, Philip and I, about that because at the end of the show whether you go, Thank you for listening to Jew talking you talking talk to me you know, like in a kind of game show way. And I was always like, No, you have to go, do, you talk to me? do you talking to me. Do talking to me. And sometimes people say Jew talking to me. I can't bear it. It's our lockdown project that took on a life of its own really. We chat to guests from across the entertainment and arts industry about their Jewishness and about their experiences growing up and family feuds and all kinds of really fun stuff. And none of it is really, I mean, I don't know if none of it is about religion is a fair thing to say, but we're not trying to educate anyone about Judaism. It has no educational content. Every group of two Jews has seven opinions. And that's what our show is really demonstrating. So we've had some amazing guests come on and just talk about what their Jewishness is. And we always ask everybody how they define what kind of Jew are you and what's bothering them bubbler. And we've had guests like the writer Anthony Horowitz, who no one really ever asks him about his Jewishness. They ask him about his characters and his books and Alex Ryder. And so I think for him, he found it quite an enjoyable process for someone to say to him, you know, about your favourite Jewish food and your favourite family feud and all of that. Uh, big deal for me was to have Valerie Landsberg, who played Doris Schwartz in the 80s show Fame.
0: That is a big deal.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I've never fangirled so much, probably my whole life, <laughs> because when I was growing up, that's who I wanted to be, Doris Schwartz in Fame. And when I was in a show when I was 11, I stood at the front of that stage and that's who I was in my head at that moment. I wasn't little Rachel Godfrey from Essex. I was Doris Schwartz on the fame end of show stage where the director of the board of education was in there who was gonna shut the school down, but they see her and they think, no, we're gonna keep over. Honestly, she was such a big influence. So that was really brilliant. And she was a wonderful guest actually and told us great stories. So we have a very big variety of voices from actors to comedians. Some are household names and famous and some are people we know or we've come across who might not be quite as famous, but are fascinating. And it's really enjoyable hearing people's different perspectives and also about how they see themselves. And we've got very, very some very exciting guests coming up in Series 3, which is going to launch in the spring. So you can hear it all on Spotify and iTunes and all the usual places and um, have a look at the guests. So that's Jew talking,
0: Jew talking to me. I almost just did it like Jew talking to me. No, it's Jew talking to me. It has been a privilege to hear your story. So thank you for coming and joining me today and sharing your sometimes funny, sometimes inspiring, sometimes challenging story. Hopefully that will spark someone else who's got a dream they want to follow.
1: I think you should give stuff a go and you should accept that some of that stuff is going to work and some of it isn't going to work. I was probably one of the world's worst dental nurses, but I'm an okay stand up. (laughs) It's good to try stuff. I mean, maybe try stuff that is going to impact on people's health.
0: I'm not going to try to be a surgeon or anything anytime soon. <laughs> not that they'd let me. Anyway.
1: Give it a go. What's a kidney to this person? Got another one. Have you got two kidneys? I just thought. Isn't it? <laughs> You'll find out.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Rachel.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thank you for giving me the chance to have this chat.
0: Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started. So your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.